My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Luke, the third chapter. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here ends the reading. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Now, if I didn't know any better, and maybe if you hadn't heard the intro where I was reading from, it could have sounded like I read something straight out of the prophets. And maybe that's a detail you remember from your confirmation days, or if you've ever done a Bible study on the prophets of the Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets, because with one notable exception, each of the minor prophets begins in one of two ways. If the book is just a collection of what the prophet had to say, then the text jumps right to that after a very brief introduction, like the word of God as it came to insert the name of the prophet. On the other hand, if there's any narrative, like stories about what the prophet was up to, things they did in their life, then the intro includes a particular detail. When did that stuff happen in a particular year of a particular king's reign? See, in the ancient world, that's how dates were recorded, based on how long certain kings had been at it. And I guess we kind of still do that today, because A.D. is short for Anno Domini, as in the year of the Lord, as in we're counting how many years it's been since Jesus was born. So this is the biblical way, the ancient way, to say, for example, uh, nowadays, if we were looking back, we might lead off with something like, in the year 1962, just as an example. So Luke 3, with an eye on John the Baptist, sure feels like the opening of one of those prophetic books. It's like John the Baptist has his own little minor prophet's book. They are rather short books. And it's embedded right here in the middle, not middle, near the beginning of Luke. Having another introduction of sorts here fits well with the first introduction that we would have got if we had started with Luke 1. See, this is a collection of accounts put together in an orderly fashion for the sake of the gospel's original recipient. Luke collected eyewitness accounts and then wrote them down in a particular order in two parts, as Luke and Acts, making the gospel stand out as unique in several ways. But the end result here in Luke is that 
he metaphorically paints a picture for the readers. This is less about getting nitty-gritty details marked down like the exact dates the way a modern history book would, and more about giving the reader a sense, a, a feeling of what the world was like when these events took place. A contemporary example of that might be, you know, again, just making something up. We might open a, open a story like this. We could say, our story takes place before the internet was invented, but after people had started buying color TVs for their homes when Eisenhower and Kennedy were president of the United States. So I give you some culturally relevant details, like what sort of access to media you might have had at that time during the story, and that may be more valuable than a simple thing like 1962. And, but then again, Eisenhower and Kennedy were not president at the same time, of course, but referencing those two plants you into a 10-year window without reference to any dates. It was somewhere in that time frame. That's how Luke works. He'll reference rulers who, in fact, were not ruling at the exact moment he's talking about. But that's not the point, because it's not a modern history book. The point is to get the listeners thinking, oh, yeah, I've heard stories about what it was like to live over there back then with that ruler and so on, and then take this story and plant it in the same spot in their minds. So a collection of stories meant to plant us in time is allowed to have multiple introductions, multiple accounts, multiple introductions, and so on. So John the Baptist getting his own in the style of the Minor Prophets fits quite nicely. He's the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah who goes out into the wilderness to preach and prophesy about the coming kingdom and the fact that Jesus would soon be there. And he serves that exact prophesied role here in the gospel. Using that word a lot, just, I mean, just to emphasize that he fits right there alongside the prophets of old. Apropos to our season of Advent, in which we center our hearts and minds around the anticipation of Christ coming into the world, Luke helps paint this picture and gives us a, an idea of what it was like for those first century Jewish folks to anticipate a Messiah. He includes the stories about Jesus and John's parents before they were born, gives us most of the Christmas story. Then as a transition to their adulthoods, we get the introduction as we had it today. This introduction is planted in time by the rule of a certain emperor and then also by three governors of four territories. The historical context there is when Herod the Great died, his territory was divided into four little ones, and these governors oversaw those four territories. Now, they each shared a geographical marker, and it was used to divide the east from the west, and that was the Jordan River. So Luke's kind of a little redundant here when he says John was preaching in the region of the Jordan right after naming the territories that are, in fact, the region of the Jordan. But that's okay, because, again, he's painting a picture of what it was like to live there. What was the political landscape, and where was John going within that? This is a whole lot of preamble that gets us around to this central point this morning. We would probably miss it if we simply read this text and then went on with our day. The Jordan River is an important historical and cultural marker in the story Luke is telling. This is where Jesus will be baptized by John, and it's been referenced again and again in the ancient stories of the Israelites. See, on the one hand, the river is used as a border. 
rivers often are. So the Romans used it to divide people. We're talking about people who largely share a cultural identity, they speak the same language, they have similar religious practice, and so on. Yet they're treated as, as what? Expendable is not the right word, but it's like the Romans aren't concerned about who their neighbors are. It's more like they're pawns in a game that the Romans are playing. They're instead concerned about power. Who knows whom? Who owes whom a favor? Who bid the highest? Uh, And so for the sake of their order, their political structure, the people are divided up. Lines are drawn between neighbors. So that's the one hand. The river divides people. But on the other hand, it's also used to unite people. Despite those artificial divisions laid out by the Romans, it was, again, a cultural marker. It was the sort of thing all those people could point to as part of God's providence. They shared those stories of old in common. They could see that the river made life possible for them, and that same river made life possible for their neighbors, a good symbolic way of talking about God. That's the sort of tension Luke is trying to include as he metaphorically paints this picture. John came out preaching in a region that was pulled in multiple directions, filled with people who were pulled just the same. Now, this isn't presented as a scandal by Luke, but the audience would have heard the subtext, this scandalous subtext. John's path here has several implications. You would preach in the wilderness because you don't want to be seen by the authorities, like, those Roman soldiers who might be out patrolling. You go from one territory to the next for similar reason, to evade being caught if they are looking for you. But perhaps most subversive of all, John anchored his preaching around a unifying cultural symbol, even as the Romans had tried to use that same geographic marker as a line to divide people. So hopefully this fills in the colors a bit in this metaphorical painting. God sent John, as the prophets of old, to preach a message that would be upsetting to the Romans, that would call people across state lines to be united as God's people, and further emphasize the message by using the Jordan River as such. Therefore, one of the ways in which God prepared God's people for Christ's coming was to lean into that which unites us, and by snubbing God's own proverbial nose at our human attempts to divide us. It's in our nature to divide up into little tribes. I mean, even after all this time, our minds just lean that way towards small tribal communities. Imperial powers take advantage of that, and really all sorts of power takes advantage of that. It is tragic and yet consistent that those who seek power will often do so, will often get it, by alienating and demonizing, scapegoating some particular group. Blame the other party. Blame a certain subculture. Blame a certain religion. You can think of whom is getting blamed by whom else today, depending on which tribe they are in, but it changes over time. The thing that's consistent is there's almost always someone to blame. Like I've shared uh, before how our founding father, Benjamin Franklin, fought to try to keep Germans from being able to immigrate to the United States. And he didn't pull any punches here. He thought Germans were just too simple-minded to understand and appreciate freedom the way he envisioned for America. And yet, if not for the fact that so many did, in fact, immigrate... Many of us would not be here today. He was wrong in his prejudices, and when we see the same arguments applied elsewhere, we should 
be suspicious. We should suspect they are probably wrong too. Now we draw lines in all sorts of other ways, right? And uh, a seminary professor of mine would often say, and he used this as a, a short way to summarize the gospel, one way you could summarize the gospel. He'd say, whenever we draw a line between, to divide ourselves between us and other people, Jesus is always on the other side. Now, there's some truth to that, of course. I mean, I say, of course, as if it's just self-evident, but a seminary professor is the one who told me. Uh, but in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly seeking out those whom society ignored, despised, or rejected. But at the same time, uh, I would call that one way to summarize the Gospel because it does confine it a bit. There's a little more to talk about here because God doesn't always just cross the line. If John's example is to be any indicator at all, as he prepares the way for Jesus and goes about preaching in the wilderness in the region of the Jordan, the Romans used the river to draw a line between people whom God regarded as one. So in this case, when we drew that line, maybe we'd say whenever we draw a line between ourselves and someone else, God just walks along that line back and forth, snubbing God's nose at it, ignoring our artificial arbitrary divisions. God does well to ignore those divisions and works to pull humanity together and then calls us to do the same, to seek the ignored, to accept the rejected, to love the neighbor and even love the enemy across those lines. Now, things have changed an awful lot in 2,000 years, and yet an awful lot has stayed the same. We still divide into tribes. We still draw those lines all the time. We still point those fingers and so on. And God still walks along them and over them, snubbing God's nose at them. For today, think of your worst enemy or the group you worry about, the the people you fear, maybe even hate. And know that God loves you and God loves them too. God is bigger than what separates them from you, and you really, we really, ought to have our minds and hearts open because when God sends someone to speak God's word to us next, they may just be coming over those lines that we drew between us and them. They may not look like us at all. God may send them not in spite of those differences, but precisely because of them. Because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than any of our human divisions. And to prepare the way for Jesus' coming is in part to start seeing past them. To make the paths straight through the wilderness that had otherwise divided us. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.